Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And we are excited to bring you the news this week. And as always, there's a lot of news. So Derek, why don't we get started talking about fighting between U.S. and Syrian militias? Uh, Yes. So late Tuesday in Washington, early Wednesday in Syria, uh, U.S. Central Command announced that uh, it had carried out airstrikes against... Uh, what it called Iran-backed groups in eastern Syria and Deir Ezzor province. It later emerged that these strikes targeted, I think, nine facilities used by uh, Iranian-aligned militias. Uh, turns out, uh, at least according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, this, these facilities belong to the, or were used by the Fatimiyun militia, which is drawn primarily from Afghan Shia fighters recruited by Iran uh, to serve in Syria. The strike was a retaliation for an attack last Monday on two facilities, two U.S. facilities in Syria, one at Tanf in southern Syria uh, and another in Deir Ezzor in the east. Uh, There were no casualties in any of those attacks. There doesn't seem to have been any damage either. Uh, But the U.S. apparently felt, or the U.S. military apparently felt it necessary to retaliate anyway. Following the airstrikes, uh, there were reports of militants attacking or I guess preparing to attack. I'm not entirely clear on this. Uh, No, I think they did carry out uh, attacks against a couple of U.S. facilities, uh, again, sort of in retaliation for the airstrike. Uh, They wounded something like three U.S. soldiers, at least three, let's say. That in turn prompted a second U.S. attack, retaliation for this uh, militant attack in which Uh, At least four fighters were killed. Thursday, there were reports as well of U.S. attacks on militia targets in Deir ez-Zor. I should add, uh, again, according to the observatory, at least six people were killed in the initial airstrike Wednesday morning, or the one that the Central Command announced Wednesday morning, Syria time. Uh, So it's been a couple of days of kind of back and forth fighting. Uh, If you're worried about the potential for this to expand, I would only say that the U.S. could end it right now by withdrawing from Syria, which is a country in which it has no legal basis to be in in the first place. Uh, But I digress. So why don't we stay in the broader region, I guess, from an American perspective, at least, and talk about the JCPOA, because it does seem like there's actually been some serious movement on uh, the Iran nuclear agreement, and it looks like it might actually go through, much to our surprise, I would say, or were you expecting something like this to happen? Um, I was not expecting the Iranians to drop as many demands as it sounds like they've dropped, so I am a little bit surprised by this. On Friday, uh, CNN reported, according to a senior Biden administration official, Anonymous, that Iranian negotiators had dropped their demand that the U.S. remove the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps from its foreign terrorist organization list. And even beyond that, had apparently dropped their fallback demand, which was that the U.S. instead delist a number of companies that are either owned by or have some ties to the IRGC uh, and its its economic activities. That's that's a, a huge development, and it explains why the tone 
and, you know, and how everybody's talking about this and how the Europeans have been talking about it, how U.S. officials have been talking about it. Even in Iran, the tone seems to be shifting in favor of uh, it looks like we're going to reach an agreement. And, and particularly in Iran, there's been some, uh, I would say, commentary in Iranian media that seems to be uh, an effort by people in the Iranian government to prepare at least their base, which, you know, it's a, it's a more conservative kind of hardlinist uh, government to prepare them for some degree of compromise on the things that the Iranians have have set out in, uh, as potential red lines. Iran, of course, last week uh, sent its response to the EU's final text of a, a, a deal to revive the 2015 agreement. It sounds like the U.S. was, the Biden administration at least, was fairly satisfied or encouraged, I guess is the word that they used, by that Iranian response. They have now sent their own response to the Iranian response. There's no indication. Uh, this was just reported uh, Wednesday, so there's no indication at this point uh, what was in that response or how far apart the two sides remain. They clearly There's clearly still some gap because otherwise this would probably be moving more quickly toward a conclusion. But it does seem like there is a light at the end of this tunnel. I think somewhat, you know, uh, tangentially, but I think it's a, it's a good sign that the momentum is in favor of a deal. Well, right now, this call, we don't have a ton of details about the call. And the deal, the United States has plays their cards very close. So they're not saying what the response is going to be. All we know is that the Europeans say that it was constructive. So we still don't know how the United States is going to respond. Potentially, this call was to quell some of those concerns with Middle East allies like Israel, who are starting to panic a little bit that maybe a deal will be close. But I don't think we could say a deal is closed just yet because the Iranians were supposed to maybe sign off on this text and it sounded like they gave responses. So it does seem like there's still a lot of negotiating to go down the line. The Israeli government is having basically a diplomatic meltdown right now over the prospect of this deal being revived. Yair Lapid, the prime minister, the interim prime minister of Israel, has been calling basically anybody who will take his call in, in Berlin, in London, in Paris, in Washington to plead with them not to go forward with this and to stop you know, stop this train where it is. I think for Lapid, this is less about the deal itself. I mean, there's a plethora of former Israeli national security officials who have left government, left public service, who now say that prodding Donald Trump to quit the deal when the Israeli government prodded him to quit the deal in 2018, that was a mistake, that Israel was better off under the nuclear deal, its security was more secure. Uh, so I don't think Lapid is, is concerned about the deal on its merits. He's concerned because he's facing an election in November, and he doesn't want to be tagged as the prime minister who lost control of this situation and allow the Americans and uh, Europeans to go forward despite his objections. So what does this suggest about the developing U.S.-Iranian relationship going forward? Uh, I don't think it suggests anything, really. I mean, I think the, the window for a relationship to develop was closed when Trump pulled out of the deal in 2018. You know, one of the criticisms now that people are throwing up, I mean, they threw it up in 2015 about the uh, when the agreement was first reached. But when, one thing the critics of the deal are really stressing now uh, is that rejoining the deal here in 2022 makes no sense because parts of the agreement uh, start to sunset in 2025. So restrictions on things like centrifuge development and, and uranium enrichment, some parts of the deal uh, that the Iranians agreed to limit while the deal was active, they start to go away in 2025. The, the Iranians didn't agree to these restrictions in perpetuity. They agreed for a period of time. The problem with this is if you you know if you were looking ahead to 
negotiating a follow-on agreement that would extend some of these sunsets or maybe gradually allow Iran to ramp up its, its nuclear program again under some strict limits. The opportunity to do anything like that was, was toast the minute Trump withdrew from the agreement. Uh, there's no trust there anymore. There's no basis for negotiation anymore. I mean, Biden is, the Biden administration has talked about, you know, we want to do a longer and stronger deal. This was their big thing for, you know, a year and a half while they were dithering around about this. There's no basis for that. There's no basis to have a negotiation. The Iranians can't trust that the Americans will abide by anything, and they really have no reason to to consider something like that. Uh, now, could you revisit in 2025 after three years of steady or two and a half, whatever it is, uh, of sort of steady commitment to the agreement? Possibly, but that's that's got to happen down the road. I don't think it's uh, it's anything that can happen anytime soon. And I would add. For the people who are who criticize the deal over these sunsets, a lot of the agreement doesn't ever go away. The inspections requirements the, that the Iranians have uh, sort of submitted to with the International Atomic Energy Agency, they're on there in perpetuity. Uh, you know, they, they don't go away. And, and uh, so there is still uh, plenty of worthwhile elements to this deal that, that aren't going to disappear in a couple of years. Thanks, Derek. Uh, so let's stay again in the general region and talk about former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan's uh, apparent legal troubles. You, you're stretching the definition of region, but okay. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll allow. I'm, a, I'm an American. I, I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> Um, yeah, so the Pakistani government on Sunday, uh, or authorities, police, I guess, filed charges against former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan uh, under Pakistan's 1997 Anti-Terrorism Act. Uh, this came a day after Khan held a political rally in Islamabad uh, for his supporters in which he reportedly criticized some senior police officials, criticized a, a judge, um, none of that particularly sounds like terrorism to me. I don't know. Your, your mileage may vary, I guess. But the, the Anti-Terrorism Act, the, the 97 Anti-Terrorism Act, is somewhat notorious for being so broadly written that it can allow Pakistani authorities to arrest anyone for pretty much anything. So, you know, they didn't like what he said at this rally, presumably, and so now they, they want to arrest him. This led to a group of Khan supporters gathering around his house in Islamabad, kind of itching for a showdown, basically. I mean, they held a, another rally at his home on, I believe, uh, was Monday, and you know, basically were itching for police. I don't, I don't know itching, but they were prepared for police to make a move uh, to arrest him and, and still are, I think, presumably to resist if they try to do that. Uh, now, a court on Sunday when the charges were filed uh, gave Khan uh, what's called pre-arrest bail, meaning police couldn't make a move to arrest him until at least Thursday. That has now been extended. Uh, the court has now extended it for at least another week. So he's not going to be arrested until at least the end of this month, uh, beginning of September, uh, and it could be extended again. The The concern here, I think, is that this could turn quite ugly quite quickly if police really do try to arrest him. Uh, you could see violence. Uh, you will probably see the Pakistani security state, which ironically enough, once supported Khan, but he he kind of fell out with the, the Pakistani military in particular. There was a rift over leadership of the Inner Services Intelligence Agency. Khan happened to side with the loser uh, in that rift. So the, the Pakistani security state will almost certainly not support him, uh, despite having having done so in the past. And so this this could be a very ugly situation, as I said, and it, it could turn on a dime in the next, you know, 
again, it's sort of a reprieve for another week, but beyond that, who knows? Could you maybe just briefly map out the various power constituencies here for people to understand like why it would go bad? Well, I mean, Khan, when he came to power, it was widely believed that he did so with the support of the Pakistani military and the Pakistani security state, which essentially still controls politics in Pakistan or to a large extent influences politics in Pakistan. He governed with, in sort of conjunction with uh, Kamar Javed Bajwa, who is the chief of staff of the Pakistani army. Um, he's uh, retiring in a couple of months, but but has been since 2016, is generally considered to be the most powerful person in Pakistan, most powerful single person. Uh, he and Khan were, were sort of in, broadly speaking, alliance with one another for uh, some time. But as I say, there was a dispute over the leadership of the Inner Services Intelligence Agency, which is a somewhat notorious Pakistani agency that's accused of, you know, uh, aiding Kashmiri militant groups. It's been accused of aiding the Afghan Taliban on multiple occasions over the last several years. And, you know, Bajwa had his candidate, his guy that he wanted to put in charge, and Khan kind of sided with the guy who was already in charge. And consequently, he and Bajwa fell out. And if you're the prime minister of Pakistan, but you're not the most powerful person in Pakistan, this, uh, you know, the, the general in charge of the army is, it's probably not a good idea to alienate that guy. But Khan did. And then after that, you know, in the sort of wake of this dispute they had, which was earlier this year, kind of March-ish, Khan faced a no-confidence vote in parliament, which he lost. And so he's now, that's why he's the former prime minister. Khan now faces terrorism charges for threatening state officials. The interior minister accused him of instigating extremism in society and inciting rebellion. A no-confidence vote in April ousted the one-time cricket star turned politician. It stemmed from public anger over the rising cost of living and an alleged falling out with the army. But Khan promised he wouldn't quietly go away and has been on a mission to prove he's still a powerful figure in Pakistan. What I would say is the concern here is Khan still has a very sizable amount of public support, popular support that's witnessed in the rally he held over the weekend. It's witnessed in the number of people who showed up at his residence to presumably uh, prepare to defend him from the police uh, on Monday. But I don't think Bajwa and the Pakistani security state would have any compunction about trying to arrest him if if you know if it comes to that you know right now they're they're probably just trying to you know sort of threaten him to to quiet down but i don't think they'd have much compunction about trying to go through those people to arrest him which is where you get uh, uh, some really potentially dangerous things happening thanks derek for explaining that to me all right let's move to a totally different region uh and that is ethiopia where fighting has unfortunately resumed so derek what's going on there yeah, there're not a lot of details about this. Um, you know, one of the hallmarks of Ethiopia is that it's hard to get news out of that country uh, if the authorities don't want it to get out. But there has by all accounts been a, a new outbreak of fighting between federal uh, the federal military and fighters from the Rebel Tigray People's Liberation Front, uh, which broke out on Wednesday. Uh, the two sides had been generally uh, honoring a ceasefire that they agreed to back in March, so that ceasefire is now unfortunately uh, looks like it is out the window. The ceasefire was supposed to kind of, you know, trigger an influx of humanitarian aid, uh, mostly to the Tigray region, where millions of people are in dire need of food assistance and, and other kinds of basic needs. That humanitarian assistance never fully manifested, and, and you know, the government and the, the TPLF blamed each other for, or have been blaming each other for the the failure to to kind of get 
enough aid into that region to uh, to meet the need. There's, like I said, details on on this resumption of fighting uh, are a little bit sparse. It's the the new fighting is situated in southern Tigray, near the Tigray region's borders with two other Ethiopian regions, Amhara and Afar. Each side is naturally, as you would expect, accusing the other of breaking the ceasefire. Uh, there is an interesting side element to this in, in that Ethiopian officials are claiming uh, that, and, and they haven't said when this happened, but they're claiming that they shot down an airplane uh, that was carrying weapons intended for the TPLF. They haven't said very much about this. Like I say, they haven't even you know, said when they did this, but they claim that this aircraft flew into Ethiopian airspace from the direction of Sudan. I guess the implication here is that the Sudanese government and the TPLF are in cahoots somehow, that they were maybe planning some kind of nefarious operation. I don't know if that's true. I mean, if this if the story about shooting the plane down is true, then it may be that the government, the Ethiopian government, felt it needed to act preemptively to stop something that, that the TPLF and, and Sudan may have had on the drawing board. The TPLF hasn't said anything as far as I know about this airplane claim. But the the upshot, again, with so few details to kind of go on, the upshot is that the ceasefire, unfortunately, is now broken. Uh, there have been calls internationally to stop fighting and restore the ceasefire. I don't see that going anywhere. I haven't seen any indication that either side is inclined toward that, uh, to, toward taking that step. Uh, And let's turn to what is probably the biggest uh, foreign policy news story in the last week, and and that is the death of Daria Dugina. Um, Maybe you could just set the scene, Derek, for who she is, um, also who her father is and his relation to Putin, and why this might be a relatively important event. So, uh, yes, Daria Dugina was killed in an apparent car bombing outside Moscow on Saturday uh, she is or was a political commentator, nationalist, kind of ultra-nationalist, uh, hard-right political commentator. She's the daughter, was the daughter of uh, Alexander Dugin, who is a political polemicist, ultra-nationalist, has written widely on the need to create a new Russian empire and... Um, has some has had some influence, I guess, or some interaction with Vladimir Putin. The degree to which uh, he's actually influencing Putin's behavior right now, or has influenced Putin's worldview, is very much uh, up for question. Uh, but Dugin, uh, by at least most accounts I've seen, suggests uh, most accounts I've seen suggest that he was probably the target here. The car that Dugina was driving was actually her father's car, uh, so that that suggests that he was the actual target. Uh, Russian media and Russian security services have, unsurprisingly, you know, leaped to conclude that you the, the Ukrainian government was responsible somehow. There are various other claims out there. There's an exiled ex-Russian politician named Ilya Ponomarev who suggested that a Russian group called the National Republican Army that supposedly, you know, is opposed to Putin uh, may have killed her as part of some effort to topple Putin's government. Russia's foreign ministry speculated that Kyiv might be behind the bombing, but an advisor to Ukraine's president said his country was not a terrorist state. They call themselves the National Republican Army, an unknown group that is now claiming responsibility for the killing of Daria Dugina. In a video statement read by a former Russian lawmaker, 
The group threatened more attacks on people with connections to the Kremlin. But there are doubts that an improvised movement could have carried out such a sophisticated attack. Investigations over the death of Daria Dugina continue. It's also possible, I mean, you hear this sort of accusations of, of a false flag that Putin somehow ordered this bombing in order to justify some kind of escalation against Ukraine. None of these things exactly make great sense. The, the, the notion that Ukraine would target Dugina is, is ridiculous. I mean, there's no, there's, there's no reason for it. She's just a political commentator. The idea that they would have targeted Dugin, again, I find just kind of baffling. Um, as I say, it's, it's very disputed how much influence he has on Putin. And anyway, there's no indication that he's playing any operational role in the Ukraine war or that killing him would have any effect on like stopping that war or even destabilizing Putin's government. That also is why I, I'm not sure about this underground kind of resistance movement killing him or killing her. Uh, I, I don't know what they expected that to, would, would have expected that to accomplish. And then, you know, to talk about the, the alternative, which is that this is some kind of Putin-ordered thing to justify some future action in Ukraine, the question becomes, what future action? He hasn't taken one yet that can be clearly tied uh, to this incident. So I don't know. There's a lot of questions still unexplained, unanswered about what actually happened here. Will we learn what happened in the next few days, or do you think that's unlikely to occur? And what do you think the fallout from this is going to be? I know you don't like making predictions, but at least, so what are potential fallouts, maybe? I mean, the, the biggest potential fallout is is that the Russians will escalate again in Ukraine and do something, you know, very drastic. Uh, I don't know what form that could take. Probably not something on the ground. It would probably be, you know, more airstrikes against populated areas or major cities or... Um, I, you know, it, it could be something like that. The fact that that hasn't happened yet, though, you know, should should suggest that maybe they're not going to do that. I mean, you would think that, you know, this is Russia has basic control over the U Ukrainian airspace. If they wanted to escalate in that fashion, they they could have already done it. In terms of an an effect on the war or on Putin's government, I just don't see it having one. Uh, again. You know, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but if you're not in the MSNBC crowd, which I gather felt like Dugin was like Vladimir Putin's mastermind or like was the was the brains behind this whole operation. I mean, they, there's even a book, I think, Putin's Brain, that's about uh, Dugin. I don't know. It's I don't try not to think about this crap that much, but uh, you know, it's it's very debatable whether he had really had that much influence on Putin or if he's just sort of a gadfly who. Uh, articulate some very extreme views and gets a lot of play because of it. And and again, at any rate, even if he was, you know, even if he molded Vladimir Putin from clay and shaped his entire worldview, the war is already happening and Putin is already off and running. Uh, I just don't know what effect, you know, killing Dugan or his daughter, uh, as the case may be, is is expected to to have here is it's you know if it's supposed to you know send him a message or if he was the actual target they were they were trying to kill him i just i don't see this having any effect i don't see it having any effect on the the russian government or on the the course of the war barring an escalation which again uh, hasn't happened thanks so much derek so why don't we talk to the final topic of discussion today and that is joe biden's recent arms transfers to ukraine Yes. So this was expected for a few days, but the Biden administration announced on Wednesday a new 
technically it's 2.98 billion so don't call it 3 billion i guess uh, arms package for ukraine which is easily the largest single package the us has unveiled for ukraine since the war began it includes basically more of the same arms and armaments that the us has been shipping already i don't think there's anything new in here uh, although i you know i, I don't want to uh, say that definitively because i don't know that for a complete certainty what is interesting about this is, A, it's very large, uh, obviously. It's much larger than the typical transfer. And B, unlike past transfers, the material in this package is not coming out of Pentagon stockpiles. So it's not going to be sent right away. It's gonna, this is a, a, basically a purchase, an arms purchase on behalf of Ukraine from arms manufacturers, which means it all has to be made and consequently means it, uh, some of it, at least, if not most of it, may not get to Ukraine for months, maybe up to a year. So what is most interesting about this, other than the size, is that it indicates that the administration doesn't see this war ending anytime soon and is making a uh, long-term commitment to continue arming Ukraine. Now, we can talk about what effect that might have on the Ukrainian government's kind of approach to the war or its resolve to keep fighting rather than uh, maybe go to the negotiating table. There are, are lots of implications here, but I think the main thing to take away from this is that the U.S. is preparing for a long conflict and a long-term effort to, to keep arming Ukraine. Uh, there is new polling, I should add, from Reuters Ipsos that shows uh, a majority of the U.S. public still supports backing Ukraine, quote, until all Russian forces are withdrawn from territory claimed by Ukraine, end quote, which uh, I guess includes Crimea, although I don't know if the poll respondents realize that. A smaller majority, the, the majority for support, kind of just broad support was 53%, 18%, only 18% opposed that statement. Uh, there is a, a slightly smaller majority, 51% support specifically arming Ukraine. Uh, only 22% are opposed to that. So there's, there is this kind of large group in the, you know, don't know, didn't say category. But uh, broadly speaking, it seems like the public, the U.S. public is still behind this effort. I should also add that Putin signed on Thursday a decree increasing the size of the Russian military from 1.9 million personnel to 2.04 million personnel, which includes an, an increase in the number of combat personnel to of, uh, I think, 137,000, uh, takes them up to 1.15 million combat personnel in the military. That, too, probably suggests that Russia also sees this as a long, long haul kind of conflict, a long slog, and is, is preparing for that. Derek Davison, as always, I am awed and impressed by your knowledge. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.